Good morning, good morning. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan Pittman. I have the pleasure of serving as uh, senior pastor here as well as one of the elders, and we are absolutely thrilled uh, that you are worshiping with us today, whether you're here in the building or whether you're online. If you're worshiping online, we're grateful for that technology. If uh, your schedule allows you, you're able to get away from the house, we'd love for you to come and worship with us here in the building in the near future. Um, if you are a guest, please help us out. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better and get you some information about the church. And the way you can do that is to fill out this connection card. It's found in a chair near you. You can drop that in the offering plate when it's passed in a little bit. As you heard Ricky say at the beginning, this is a great week of lots of things starting back up again. And so things are starting today. Things have already started today. Things are going on this week. And so equipping classes are our Bible study classes that meet on Sunday mornings at nine o'clock. The majority of them, there is one ladies class that meets on Thursday night, but the majority of them are on Sunday mornings. And so they started today. They'll continue for the next 11 weeks. You don't want to miss out on equipping classes. We have uh, Awana that is starting back tonight at 5 o'clock for our kids and their kids' families to do uh, ministry together and do discipleship together. And then there is our hope groups that are our, our hope groups are starting back this week. In fact, we've got a large number of folks that come on Sunday mornings uh, for a hope group after the service. And so we've got one on Sunday afternoon. We've got one, at least one, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights. There's still space for you to sign up to be a part of a hope group as well. I wanted to kind of give you an update on where we are with things. Right now, I am thrilled to tell you that we have over 140 adults signed up for our hope groups, which absolutely is exciting. But we still have room for you. So if you've not signed up for a hope group yet, go to our homepage to the hope, click on the hope groups that are available, sign up for one. If you want to be a part of one, there's one happening here in the building at 1230 today. You could see what that's all about as well. Our equipping classes. I don't know for sure where we are because I looked at it last night, but I know that we have around 75 of our uh, college, youth, and adults and women, I know women are adults, but men, women, whatever, uh, that are a part of an equipping class. That's 75, which is a good number, but I'd love to see more. And men, let me just tell you to step up to the plate. Right now, there are two times as many women signed up for an equipping class than there are men. So I'm just saying, men, step up to the plate. We've had one week of equipping classes already, other than the women's class that hasn't met yet on Thursday night. It's not too late to sign up. Sign up for one. Now, I'm not guilt-tripping anyone. Some of you may be in another discipleship avenue. I get that. But in all seriousness, we have twice as many women sign up for discipleship classes, equipping classes, than we do men. So men, go ahead and step up to the plate. Jump in. Be a part of an equipping class. That would be a blast. All right, there we go. Here we go. Pick up your worship guide. When you came in, hopefully you got this. Uh, on the back side, there's a place to take notes. You can see where we are going to be today, which is the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be finishing up Acts uh, almost this year. We'll finish it up just the first couple weeks of January. And then uh, the plan right now, unless the Lord says something different, is we're going to go to uh, the Old Testament prophet Micah and spend some time there. And I'm looking forward to jumping into one of the prophets. Um, but today we are in Acts, and you'll see at the bottom there, uh, it shows you where we'll be next week as well. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in Acts chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible near you, underneath a seat around you. It's a big, uh, not big, but it's a hardback black copy of the Bible. Feel free to take that home with you if you need that, um, or someone else in your life needs that. We're going to read. Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16, as we continue the story of Paul heading back to Jerusalem. And if you've not been here, or you've missed a few weeks, and you're like, I don't know where we are exactly, pay attention to this sermon. But then later this week, go back and look at our website, and all of our sermons are archived there, and you can kind of watch previous sermons. Here is Acts chapter 21, verse 1 through 16. Jumps right in the middle, because it starts with the word and. And... When we had parted from them, they've, they've left Miletus. When we parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo." And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. And said, let the will of the Lord be done. After those days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. All right. So, so far, leading up to this point and continuing through this account, Paul is on a steady, quick, hurried, anxious, ready-to-get-there trip to Jerusalem. In fact, in verse 1, you'll see that it said he made straight course. He's going straight there. So I, I've got a new uh, a laser pointer that I'm going to use today, and we're going to look at a map, and we're going to kind of talk about where they are in the whole process. And it's right there on the screen, and so they go, do we have that or no? Ah, yeah, we do, we do, we do. All right, so the story starts up here in Miletus. It ends down here in Jerusalem. And Paul and his, uh, the people that are with him take kind of, in verse 1, they kind of take some road, not road trips, but like day trips, going from port to port, and they go down to Kos, and then to Rhodes, and then to Patera, all right? When they get to Patera, they decide, we're going to go on to Phoenicia, which is over in this area, because Jerusalem's only about 100 miles or so uh, from Tyre. And the interesting thing is they said they left Cyprus on their left, and the reason for that is because they sailed the open sea to get there instead of taking this route. It would have been natural to take that other route because it was closer to the, 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 the land if they needed to kind of get back safely, but they took the open seas, which made them more, more vulnerable, but they did that so they could get there quicker because Paul had a plan to get to Jerusalem by a certain time. They get to Tyre, and we'll see in a moment that he spends some time in Tyre. He's there for, uh, uh, yeah, oh my goodness, I'm going blank right now. What's my notes say over here? Let's look real quickly. So he's in Tyre for, um, somebody help me out here. Somebody know? Many days? No, he stays in Tyre one day. All right, seven days. I knew that. I was just testing y'all's knowledge. They are in Tyre for seven days. You know, it's one of those things where I know the answer and I'm going blank on the spot. So there, he, he's in Tyre for, for seven days comes down to Ptolemaeus for a quick little jaunt, and then he ends up in Caesarea for a bit. And there's something that happens in Tyre, as well as in Caesarea, that prevents him potentially from getting to Jerusalem. So let's look closer. I wanted y'all to see kind of the lay of the land where everything took place. Here's what's going on. I want us to focus this morning on the plot line that gets us from, from Tyre down to Jerusalem. If I looked at my notes right there, it is. They spent a week in Tyre. You can see that in verse 4. They spend a week, they spend seven days in Tyre with the disciples, the followers of Jesus in Tyre. And while they are there, we see in verse 4 that the Spirit speaks to the disciples there. And apparently when he speaks to the disciples in Tyre, the Holy Spirit tells them, Paul has imprisonment and afflictions awaiting for him when he gets to Jerusalem. And as a result of what the Spirit tells them, it says in verse 4, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go. I want you to focus on the words through the Spirit because it seems to be contradictory to what the Holy Spirit has told Paul already. Uh, let's hold that thought and we'll get there in a second. And then in verses 5 through 7, we see from there that, they, that Paul is determined to go on to Jerusalem. He doesn't stay there like the disciples ask him to. Instead, he sails on to Ptolemaeus, and then from there he goes to Caesarea. 
we see a couple of characters come up in Caesarea that we've been introduced to earlier in the book of Acts. We see Agabus show up because he's a prophet and he's already been in there, I believe in chapter 11 earlier. And then we see Philip, who's referred to as the evangelist. And if you remember Philip, he was one of the seven. He was one of the deacons that we find in Acts chapter 6. And then perhaps you remember Philip went and preached to the Ethiopian eunuch and he came to salvation. And this is the Philip that we're talking about, all right? So Philip shows back up in the story. He's in Caesarea. Paul and his followers, or the disciples that are with him, stay with Philip in his house. Now, it's interesting in verse 10, uh, sorry, verses 8 and 9, we find out something about Philip's daughters, but we don't find out a whole lot. All we know is he has four unmarried daughters, that means they live with him, and they are prophesying. We, we don't know what he's, they're, they're prophesying for sure, but we know that they have prophesied. I want us to think for just a second, why does Luke include that? I'm not really sure, but here are a couple of reasons that it could be. One is we're reminded of the important role of women in the life of the church. That, that these women are spoken of, that they are prophesying, therefore they have an important role, and so he elevates, Luke does constantly, the role of women in the church. And, and then, and that's contrary, by the way, to what a lot of societies thinks. Society thinks that, uh, that, 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 that women have to be quieter, that the Bible says that women can't do anything in the church, and what we have to do is we have to read that in context to understand what it is saying. That, that we have distinct roles, yes, and men should serve as elders, and that's clear in Scripture, but there are lots of ways that women should serve in a local church. And so here are women serving. And then secondly, if you remember back in Acts chapter 2, we know that Peter stands up to preach at, at Pentecost. And do you remember that he quotes something from the prophet Joel? And I don't know if you remember it or not. I'm not going to read the verse, but you may, well, I'm going to read a portion of it. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And here's what Joel says that Peter, I mean, yeah, Peter says at Pentecost, in the last days, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So here's Philip's daughters in the last days prophesying. What are the last days? From the time that Jesus uh, ascended back to heaven until he's coming back for taking his church again those are the last days and so what Paul is saying or Luke is saying here is that that these women are it's a fulfillment if you will of what Paul uh, sorry I keep saying the wrong name it's a fulfillment of what Peter said via Joel then in verse 10 we see Agabus shows up and Agabus comes in much like the Old Testament prophets and what I mean by that is he makes a statement he says thus says the Holy Spirit if you remember much about Old Testament prophets, a lot of times they'd say, thus saith the Lord. So he's kind of in the spirit of an Old Testament prophet. He is a prophet. And then he does something else that's in the spirit of an Old Testament prophet. He has a prop. He has a, an illustration. He, he, he has a kind of a, a, a picture of, of a, a, like a, an object lesson, if you will. It's funny this week while I was reading it. And I thought about how the Old Testament prophets, and Agabus included, had these, old, these props that they used and object lessons. I kind of thought, in a way, it's kind of like an early version of a children's chat. Because at uh, children's chat, uh, Howard comes in with an object lesson. And so, anyway. All right, so that's what we have here. And, and what Agabus says is, hey, Paul, Paul, give me your belt. And so this belt would be more than like the belt that I'm wearing today. It'd be more like a waist belt thing that held your money and wrapped around. It was really big. And he got that from Paul. And then Agabus tied it around his own hands, around his own waist, and then he goes, the guy who owns this, which is Paul, is going to end up just like this. He's going to be imprisoned and turned over to the Gentiles. So, in verse 12, we see the people respond. And they go, oh my goodness, we don't want that to happen to you. And it's interesting, if you look at verse 12, the word we is used there. Because Luke is apparently on this portion of the trip, and Luke himself is saying, we don't want you to go to jail, we're urging him to stay. And then in verse 13, Paul says, what are you doing? Like, you're breaking my heart. This word breaking is also used whenever referencing, um, uh, like, pounding clothes against a rock that would be like laundry, like cleaning your clothes, like just being rough and abrasive with it. And Paul's saying, man, my heart is aching because you're telling me not to go, but I know the Lord has told me to go, and I'm upset already, and it's making it worse, and I'm going to show my age here, but 
it reminded me of a movie quote, and that is kind of like the thought of, you're killing me, Smalls. Like, how are you doing this to me? I can't believe you're doing this. This is hard enough, and now you're trying to stop me. And then in verse 14, we see that nothing is going to stop Paul's determination, and so they relented and they let him go. So we see he goes on to Jerusalem. Next week, we're going to pick up the story there. But I want us to see that verse 14 is the, for me, the, the crux of the whole passage. Verse 14, they see that Paul would not be persuaded, so they ceased, and here's what they said. Let the will of the Lord be done. At the top of your sermon notes, you're like, finally, he's to the sermon notes. At the top of my sermon notes, you'll see the title is, The Lord's Will Be Done. They finally say, let the Lord's will be done. The reality is, when we say, may the Lord's will be done, we can say it with two kind of motivations. One's kind of frustration. I don't want to do this. I don't want it to go that way. But the Lord's will be done. The other way is a much better way, and that's a conviction where we go, Lord, I'd rather maybe something else. I'm not really sure what should happen. But Lord, may your will be done. I'm a willing participant. May that be our conviction. So the question is this, how in the world does Paul come to a different conclusion than the disciples at Tyre about what the Holy Spirit is saying? Do do you remember last week as we looked at Paul's words, he said that he was constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. You, You can mark it down, it's chapter 20 verse 22. So how can Paul say, the Holy Spirit is telling me and bound me to this, and I have no other option, but I'm wanting the Lord's will be done, done, so I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And then we get to verse 4 today, and it says that the disciples heard through the Holy Spirit were telling him not to go. Like, which one is right? Which one is wrong? What's going on here? How are there conflicting messages? The reality is the Holy Spirit wasn't telling different things to different people. The reality is Paul was not just being stubborn. What's going on here is this. Everyone heard the same message apparently. Agabus, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be bound up. Paul heard the same message. The disciples at Tyre, the disciples at Caesarea said, Paul, don't go. It's not going to be a good thing. We don't want you to be arrested. Everyone heard the content of the same thing from the Holy Spirit. But here's the deal. As a result of what is said, what actions are taken? Paul felt prompted by the Holy Spirit, based on what he heard from the Spirit, to go ahead and go to Jerusalem. That's what he knew the Lord was leading him to do. The disciples at Tyre and Caesarea, I believe, heard the same message. They did not hear the Spirit say, and tell Paul to stay. Rather, they interpreted what the Spirit said. They then kind of said, oh my goodness, I don't want him to be arrested, so Paul, please don't go. It's like they added to what the Spirit was saying. They didn't do it ill will, but they were still doing it. They were adding to what the Spirit was saying. Paul knew all along that he was to go and face the difficulties along the way. If you don't believe me, look real quickly uh, at this. It'll be on on the screen. Acts chapter 9, verse 16. This is where... Uh, Paul has just gotten saved. Ananias is to go see Paul and tell him that God has great plans for him. And a part of the message that Ananias was to share to Paul was, God says, I will show him, talking about Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So from the very beginning, Paul knew that he would suffer and things like this might come along the way. And then in verse chapter 20, verse 22, he was constrained by the Spirit, and the Spirit was leading him. Then look at uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 23, and we see something very incredible here. It says, except, Paul says, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. It's like the Holy Spirit saying, every city you go to, you're going to be reminded that you're supposed to go to Jerusalem. And so when it gets to Tyre, he's reminded he's supposed to go to Jerusalem, but the disciples say, don't. When he gets to Caesarea, he's reminded when Agabus says, you're you're going to face this, that he's supposed to go to Jerusalem, and yet the disciples say, don't. So you see what's going on here. The Holy Spirit has clearly given the same message, but the disciples in Tyre and in Caesarea misapply what the Spirit has said. Here's the deal. When it comes to prophecy, 
when it comes to a word from the Lord. Whenever the Old Testament prophets would stand up and make a prophecy, what you have here is there is a difference or a distinction between a prediction and a prohibition. And what I mean by that is that the Old Testament prophets that were of God would correctly predict or prophesy or foretell something that's going to happen. But sometimes it was just so that the people would understand, not necessarily that they then in turn would tell them they couldn't do something. And what happens is the people in Tyre and Caesarea heard a prediction and made a prohibition where they shouldn't have. Does that make sense? All right, all right. So here's the deal. My time is going, so I'm going to go. What are we going to learn from all this? Here are the points. I promise you my points are much shorter than what I've shared thus far. Everything that we've seen here, between the Holy Spirit clearly telling Paul, Paul, you go to Jerusalem, versus the people that heard the story, and they said, Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem, and then the end result where Paul does go to Jerusalem, what do we learn from all of this? The first thing is this. It's on the screen. It's on your notes. Don't fight the Lord's will. This happened when the disciples assumed that the warnings that the Holy Spirit were giving were telling Paul not to go. They actually, by saying, Paul, don't go, were fighting the Holy Spirit. They took the word of the Holy Spirit and they came to the wrong conclusion. They had great intentions. They loved Paul. They didn't want him to be arrested. They presumed that physical safety had to be a part of God's will. They were not fighting God's will intentionally. They were not fighting God's will maliciously. There was no evil or ill intent, but nevertheless, the danger and the result is the same when we try to fight against the Lord's will. You see, they had their, had they had their own way. Now, I have, to get, I, I have to be theologically correct. God's sovereignty means he does what he wants to do. Okay? That's non-negotiable. So don't misinterpret what I'm about to say. If they had had their way and Paul had not gone on to Jerusalem, then as a result of that, God's way would have potentially been circumvented or, or I don't know. That, that, that's like, can God make a rock too big that he can't move it? Absolutely, that's a dumb question. So when I get to if they had stood in the way of God's plan, could it have succeeded? Absolutely not. In other words, if they had stopped him from going, God still would have still ha somehow gotten him to Jerusalem, right? All right, so please hear me say, I'm not negating God's sovereignty, and at the same time, I'm saying that we should never try to stand in the way of God's will. All right? So I had a friend. Her name is Casey. I was a mission pastor. I was in... Louisiana, because they need lots of missions over there. Now, I was in Louisiana. <laughs> Casey was a college student. She was going to a private Baptist school in East Texas, ETBU. And, and there was going to be a trip that was going to Ecuador. And it was a mission trip to Ecuador. And she felt the Lord was leading her to go. So she made a decision as a young lady to go on this trip. I remember answering a phone call one day, and it's her dad. Her dad did not want her to go. Here's why he didn't want to go. Casey saved that money up for college. She shouldn't be digging into her college savings to go on a mission trip. Casey felt like the Lord was saying go. She had no other option. He, I think, actually was nervous about his daughter leaving the country and leaving home. He tried to, in a good way, stop her from going, but she persevered, pushed through in a healthy way, and she went because nothing was going to deter her from doing what the Lord was leading her to do. The interesting thing is, as far as I know, to this day still, 15 years later, she is a missionary in the Middle East. What I'm saying is this daddy meant well, but he was fighting the will of the Lord. Now, a few years later, I'm thinking about my eldest that 
she and her soon-to-be husband are wondering if missions is in store for them. She's already moved to Kentucky. She may move to Indiana. She may move to Kansas City. And who knows, she may move across the ocean. The question is, am I going to be okay with that? We cannot fight the will of the Lord. So here's my question for you. I ask you a question every time, typically, we get to the end of a section. So here it is. How are you fighting God's will? You're like, I'm not fighting God's will. Let me give you a few examples. You could directly be fighting God's will right now. Directly fighting his will by being outright, obvious sinner. You're sinning against God. It's against his word. You're living in sin. You're making choices that are wrong. You could care less what God's word has to say. You're standing in the way. You're fighting against his will because it feels good to me, so I'm going to do it. The reality is this. Some of you need to confess your sin. You need to repent of your sin. And you need to turn from that sin, trusting the Holy Spirit to empower you to live in that way. So some of us are fighting the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the Lord's will, by directly sinning against him. The second way that maybe many of us are, and that's a more subtle way, how do we subtly fight God's will? With distractions. With misprioritizing things in our life with putting off what we know God is telling us to do today and I'll do it later by assuming my safety must be intact before I say yes. To presume that my outward circumstances must make me happy and feel good. There's lots of ways that we may be fighting God's will. My question is, are you fighting God's will? The second thing I want us to see from this text is that God's will can be painful. I didn't say it's always painful, but his will can be painful. Paul had experienced all kinds of afflictions. He had been stoned by rocks that had been hurled at him. He had been stoned. He had been uh, arrested. He, he, he's going to be arrested again. He's going to end up being a martyr for the faith. He's faced all these difficulties, and yet he's willing to keep pressing forward. It says in this text that he's willing to die for the name of Jesus if called upon. And the story goes that he will die for the name of Jesus. And here he is, he's hurting as he's agonizing over his friends trying to prevent him from following the Lord's will. God's will is painful for the friends because they don't want to see Paul to leave. They urged him to stay and they said goodbye in tears as he left. Everyone knows in this story, without all the full details, what awaits for Paul and that it's going to be painful. God's will at times is painful. You're like, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for something else. Like, isn't God's will always supposed to be easy? Isn't following Jesus supposed to be a walk in the park? Isn't following Jesus supposed to be pain-free, stress-free? Aren't I always supposed to be externally happy in all situations? The answer is you may be, but the answer is most often you may not be. My D group and I have been reading through the book of Job, uh, sections of Job, and the reality is this, if you know much about Job, this man wasn't perfect, but he says he was blameless before the Lord, and yet he lost everything, right? Loved ones, his own health, his crops. It was not a walk in the park for Job. It was not easy, and yet he didn't curse the Lord and die. He kept following the Lord's will. I want us to consider the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, what does he say about following him? Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We are to take up our cross and follow him. It sounds like to me that at times God's will is painful. Now, can I give you a word of caution, though? Don't go all crazy on me. Don't think my life must be miserable, and if it's not, then I'm not following the Lord's will, because I'm not saying that. You don't have to suffer to be following the Lord's will. It's just at times we will feel like we're suffering. The reality is this. If you think you have to be suffering constantly to be doing the Lord's will, that's a dangerous way of seeing it. But the reality is this. There is a price to be paid to follow Jesus. Jesus says, consider the cost. 
Guys, the only thing that's more costly than being a disciple is not being a disciple. Did you hear that? The only thing more costly than being a disciple is not being a disciple. Because the reality is, whose life is a walk in the park? Whose life is easy? When is life always simple? When is life always stress-free? I'm not minimizing anybody's situation. The reality is life is hard. And why would we try to gain the world and yet lose our soul? Because that is pointless. There is a price to be paid to follow the Lord's will, but it's a price worth paying. Here's my question for you. It's on the screen. What pain or what discomfort is preventing you from following the Lord's will right now? I'm going to share a list. There's like seven or eight of them. This is not an exhaustive list, but here are some ways that you might experience discomfort or pain or suffering when it comes to following the Lord's will, and you could prevent, allow it to prevent you. And here's the deal. Maybe some of you are saying, Alan, I can't tithe. I can't give to the church. I can't give to the cause of the kingdom because I can't afford it. Others of you say, Alan, I can't sign up for a hope group. I can't sign up for an equipping class. I don't have the time. Some of us are saying, Alan, I can't serve at church because that's not my comfort zone. I really don't feel comfortable doing that. I'd rather sit and receive. Some of you are going, I can't talk to my coworker about Jesus. What if he or she rejects me when I talk to them about Jesus? Some of you are going, Alan, I can't study my Bible. I can't pray every day because I just don't have the margin. There's too many things going on in life. I'm too busy to study God's Word. Some of you may be saying, I can't turn from that sin because I enjoy it too much. Like, it's too fun. It's too enjoyable. I can't turn from that sin. Others of you say, I can't say I'm sorry. I can't reconcile with someone. I can't apologize. I'm too proud. I'm, I'm, I'd be embarrassed. I'm going to show my age big time here. I'm kind of like Fonzie. It's hard for me to say, I'm, I'm sorry. The reality is this. What is keeping you from following the Lord's will? Don't allow what we perceive as discomfort from saying no to God. The last thing that I want us to see is in this text, to follow the Lord's will resolutely. That word resolutely is a strong word. Like, I'm not going to allow anything to keep me from following the will of the Lord. That's what Paul did. My ask of us is that we would have this same attitude. You see, Paul pressed on. We see in verse 13, look at it with me. In verse 13, the end of the verse, he says this, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul knew that God was sending him to Jerusalem, and so nothing, no one, no circumstance would get in the way of him following God's will. Not his own fears, not his cares, not his concerns for his own safety or his own life, not his well-meaning friends that were telling him not to go. Have you ever heard somebody say, Christian, settle down, simmer down, like don't be so radical. The reality is we are called to radical obedience. Don't allow someone to tell you you're being a fanatic. Now, if you're, being, if you're going beyond what Scripture teaches, that's a whole other story, right? But if you're following what Scripture teaches, the world, even your Christian friends at times, will think you're a fanatic. So Paul was not going to allow anything to slow him down, to take away his focus. He's on a beeline for Jerusalem. He's undeterred. He's determined. He's on a mission. It's God's mission. He pressed through all of it. It's not by his pride. It's not by his stubbornness, but it's his confidence in God's will for his life. In verse 14, we see that he could not be persuaded otherwise to do anything else. My Challenge to each one of us is this, don't let anyone or anything talk you out of following the Lord's will. Here's my question on the screen. Are you resolved to follow God's will or your own? Because I believe that every one of us in this room is resolved to follow someone's will. I'm either going to follow my own will, aka sin, 
or I'm going to follow the Lord's will, which means I'm going to study his word, I'm going to be a part of his body of Christ, I'm going to listen to what he's saying, I'm going to be a part of conversations with other believers that can encourage me in the right way, we're going to seek the Lord's will together, and we're going to follow the Lord's will. My question is, are you more resolved to follow your own will, or are you more resolved to follow the Lord's will? I know for me, one big way that I am more likely to follow the Lord's will is if I stay in touch with my guys that are in my D group with me. Because if I isolate, if I get on my own, if I come in on Sunday mornings, I'm teaching a class on theology, and one of our class members that I love to death said, you're the pastor, you're the theologian. The reality is all of us are theologians. The reality is I'm just another dude, and if I'm not careful, I can take a high seat thinking I've got it all together, when in reality I don't have it all together. I need accountability in my life or else I'm going to resolve to follow my own will. Here's the deal. We've got a few tables set up this morning. And the reason we've got them set up is because we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. And for us to understand why we're taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the service this morning and why we're doing this, it ties directly back into what we've looked at in the life of Paul. I want us to be really careful. Paul is not Jesus. Nowhere near Jesus. But what we do see with Paul is that he is following the example of his master. And we're called to follow the example of our master as well. So the last thing that's on your notes says this. All of this is possible, standing up for the will of God and following the will of God because Jesus followed the Father's will. It's only possible because Jesus followed the Father's will. What do I mean by that? Paul was following the way of his Savior like we should. And the way of the Savior was this, and here's the deal, his story and Paul's are similar in the sense that, just like Paul, Jesus was headed resolutely to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and what's awaiting for him in Jerusalem is arrest and death on the cross. And what happens on his way to Jerusalem, his friends, his disciples say, Jesus, surely don't go, it's not worth it, don't do this. And Jesus went on determined. Jesus ended up in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, Lord, if there's any other way that this cup may pass by me, would it happen? Yet not my will, your will be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. And you're like, oh my goodness, so, so, so Jesus is scared he's going to die on the cross? He's scared of the pain of death? Absolutely not. Why is he wanting the cup to pass him? The cup that he's asking to pass from him is the cup of God's wrath. You see, he's not scared of dying on the cross, and he's not scared of the wrath of God, but he knows the wrath of God is a serious thing, and the reality is that Jesus would die on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he died as our substitute. He had lived a life that none of us can live perfection. He died a death that you and I deserve because of our sin. He didn't sin, but he took the weight of our sins on his shoulder, which meant the cup of wrath of God would be poured out on him, and he would experience the wrath of God on our behalf because of our sin. And yet Jesus went to the cross, and then three days later, he was raised to life. See, he lived a life we couldn't live because of our sin. He died a death that we deserved because of our sin. His body was broken. His blood was spilled out all for us. He was our substitute. He took on all our sin. He was in agony over our sin, and yet he willingly did it that the Lord's will would be done that opened anyone that is trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And when we take that bread, it's a symbol of Jesus' broken body on our behalf. He followed the Lord's will. When we take that juice, it's a symbol of his blood that was poured out for us. It's a symbol of him following the Lord's will. The only way that you and I can follow the Lord's will is if we first trust in Jesus as our Savior, believe in him for salvation, and then follow his example. Not because we're Messiah, but we follow his example of putting our will aside and seeking his will first and foremost. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and after the prayer is over with, some music is going to be played. I believe Alicia is going to be playing the keys, and as she does that, you'll have an opportunity to pray and reflect at your seat. If you want to grab your kids during that time, you can, and we're going to spend three or four or five minutes or whatever reflecting and praying, and then as you feel led to, stand up if you feel led to, if you're a believer in Jesus, 
come and get the bread and the juice and then bring it back to your seat and we'll take it together in just a moment, okay? If you're not able to get out of your seat, you need some help, just raise your hand. Some deacons are in the back and they'll be willing to serve you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this chance to come together this morning to receive the Lord's Supper. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that this is all only possible because Jesus willingly went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins. Help us to reflect on that truth when we take this bread and when we take this juice. Help us to spend a few moments reflecting on sin in our lives that we may need to repent of and turn from, that we need to make our hearts ready to receive what is here for us today. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus' blood shed and his body broken and that he died on the cross and was raised on the third day that we might have life. We proclaim that truth, we believe that truth, and we celebrate that together this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Pray, reflect, and then come get the elements when you're ready. Take them back to your seat. take another minute or so if you need to be served because you can't get out just raise your hand one of our deacons will serve you
as uh, people finish up grabbing those and going back to their seat, one thing I meant to say a moment ago is anytime in our church when we take the Lord's Supper, if it's while the kids are out in fusion or children's worship, if I ever forget, hey, go get your kids if you'd like to, please know that that's always there. Like I was a little concerned I might forget it this morning. I didn't, but just let that be a statement up front that you're always uh, invited to go get your kids if they're a believer and you'd like to bring them in to be a part of the Lord's Supper. We sometimes do it while they're in here, sometimes it's when they're out. That evening when Jesus ends up in Jerusalem, he's there for about a week and then four or five days, and then he has an opportunity to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And while they're at the Passover, he begins to describe how this Passover is taking on a new meaning, and he points to his sacrifice on the cross on their behalf and on our behalf as well. And so that evening, he took the bread, and so I'd encourage you to take the bread. He took the bread, and Matthew chapter 26 says, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it. He gave it to the disciples, and here's what he said, take, eat, this is my body. And of course, after the bread, then they got out the wine and they began to fill up the cups and Jesus held up the cup, this is grape juice, but he held up the cup and he said, it says here from Matthew 26, when he had given thanks, he gave them the cup and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, we, uh, we thank you. Even with the taste of this juice in our mouths, we thank you for the price you paid on the cross for our sins. Father, I pray that that would empower us to follow you and your will for our lives regardless of the cost that it may bring us may all glory and honor be given to you not just with our words but with our actions and our attitudes as well may we never fight your will for our lives or anyone else's may we never try to get in your way as if that was possible but may we willingly submit ourselves to you and follow you, for that's our desire. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. There may be all kinds of spiritual decisions you may need to make this morning. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a couple of songs together. During the first one, I'll be available here at the front for you to come and pray with me. You can pray at the altar there at your seat. You can fill out your connection card. During the second one, we're going to continue that same response time with additional uh, handing of the offering plate. If you've come prepared to give to that or drop something in the offering plate, it'll be there. But here's some possible things. Salvation. Maybe you need to say yes to Jesus. Baptism's coming up in a couple of weeks. Maybe you need to say yes to being baptized. Uh, church membership. Maybe you've taken the membership class and you need to take that step of obedience and uh, join the church. You may need to come to the new member classes happening this afternoon to learn more about it. You may need to say yes to a hope group or an equipping class or serving. You may even be feeling the Lord is leading you into vocational ministry or to serve as a missionary. There may be a particular sin you need to repent of, but here's what I know all of us need to say yes to following the Lord's will. Would you stand with me? Would we sing together? I'm available here at the front if you'd like to come and pray with me. Let's worship together, church.
correct statement Christ is enough but the question is when we state that theologically correct statement do we truly believe it do we truly live it out when we say I have decided to follow Jesus no turning back that's a good statement but the question is are we going to do that? So here's the question. Are we going to do what some of us did this morning and come and share something that's going on in our life or come and pray at the altar or pray there in our seat or jot down on our connection card or think, i got to do this or that? Are we going to step out on action, in action or are we going to walk out these doors and are we going to allow the hurriedness and busyness and distraction of our life and everyday life to fight against the Lord's will? Or are we going to say yes? So my challenge to you is don't leave this building. There's nothing magical about this building, but don't leave this building until you take an action step on the very thing that you heard the Lord say to you today. Could be pull out your phone, sign up for the thing. Could be stop by and ask questions about it. Could be making a decision. By golly, I'm going to be at the new member class tonight. It's at 4.45. I'm going to get a little snack. I'm going to have free child care. And I'm going to learn more about the church. And it's going to be a good thing. I don't know what you need to say yes to. But I do know if the Lord is saying to do it. And you need to do it. Alright? Here's one thing Alan's going to ask you to do. And that is when we dismiss. I'm going to leave some prayer. And then when we dismiss, take a moment or two greet somebody around you somebody you don't know somebody you don't know well get to know each other because if we're going to be the church we got to be family to one another and love one another well which means we got to know each other right new member class is this evening at 4:45. if you have questions about it stop by and ask me we'd love for you to be here be a part of that let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed god you are good you are faithful you are enough Jesus is enough. And so this morning we say that we have decided to follow you. And may nothing cause us to turn back. To you be the glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go be disciples, make disciples, be the church, the glory of God. You're dismissed. Amen.